Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. We are going to spend some time uh, reflecting on the third paragraph of Ed's reading uh, in between the wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And truly, this was the son of God. We're going to spend some time reflecting on that now. Uh, the crucifixion account and its aftermath is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew is it's what we call spare. And what I mean by that is there's no attempt to play on our heartstrings. There's no sentimentality. There's not any reasons given for what happens. Matthew just kind of records the straight facts. But that creates a problem, because what do the events of Good Friday mean? M Matthew doesn't tell us. Imagine for a moment you were watching an American football game, but you knew zero about it. Now, for some of you, that's not hard to imagine, because you do, in fact, know zero about, you know, American football. But, but if you watched a football game and didn't know anything about what was going on, if I asked you about it afterwards, you might be able to retell some of the things that happened. Like, this big tank of a person ran into this person, you know, there was a ball involved, someone did a funny dance at some point. Um, you would be able to kind of narrate some of the events. Uh, but to tell me, you know, what the score was, um, you know, what it meant, who the key players were, um, you'd have a hard time. It's kind of meaningless without someone who's there to explain what's going on. And I think the same is, is sort of similar with Good Friday. The events are here, like we read them, but I bet if we kind of wandered around Ottawa this afternoon, I bet we could find plenty of secular people who could narrate the events of Good Friday. But the events alone don't explain the meaning. So what I want to do with our time together this morning is to look at the four things that happened after Jesus' death. And by looking at what happened after Jesus' death, what his death did, 
I think it tells us some interesting things about what his death means, what Good Friday means. Think of it like an earthquake, an earthquake and aftershocks. Seismologists will tell you that aftershocks occur by the earth adjusting to the stress of the original earthquake. An earthquake happens, it shakes things in every direction, and then because the rock has shifted elsewhere, as it settles into place, there are these kind of sometimes even massive after effects, these shocks. And so if Jesus' death is the original earthquake on Good Friday, there are four aftershocks that come after. It's the world adjusting to the reality of his death. So the first aftershock is the tearing of the curtain. Jesus dies in verse 50. I know our, our verse numbers aren't listed there. It's right at the top of the reading I referred to earlier. To be more accurate, actually, Jesus gives up his life. Matthew says it this way. He says he yields his spirit. That has the sense of a, a warrior laying down his sword. He, he gives it up freely without compulsion. Jesus' life was not stolen from him the way that death steals life from each of us. But Jesus submits to its grasp. Then Matthew, uh, he's sort of a master storyteller, he immediately transports us from the, the hill of Golgotha, which is like this hill, this crucifixion place outside Jerusalem, where Jesus was, where Jesus' body was. He transports us from there into the temple, where this curtain is suddenly torn in two from top to bottom. Now why is that meaningful? Well, actually, we have to go back all the way to the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, God banished them from the garden, from his immediate presence, God could not be close to sinful people. God is holy, and Adam and Eve were no longer. He could not be with them. And Genesis tells us that at the entrance to the garden, on the east side of the garden, uh, God stationed an angel there with a flaming sword. And the angel was there to protect Adam and Eve from the presence of God, and also to bar them from the tree of life, because to live forever with our sin, it's pain. It's not a gift. Um, later on, when God instructed his people to build a tabernacle, which is basically a temple, but made out of curtains, and then, uh, then later to build an actual temple itself, he said, construct a large curtain that will separate the holy of holies, the, 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 the most holy place in the temple, from the rest of it. And the most holy place was the innermost room of the temple and, and of the tabernacle when they had that, where the presence of God sort of rested with his people. They called it his footstool where God's kind of feet were on earth, and it contained the Ark of the Covenant, contained a few other very sacred objects. But do you know what was woven into the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from everything else? It's in that chapter that you skipped in your you know, Leviticus reading. It's, it's depictions of cherubim. There are angels woven into the curtain. Once again, between God and his people is an angel, or angels. And this curtain was not sort of like a little bedroom curtain. It was 60 feet high, a little, you know, not, maybe not quite as high as our gymnasium here, 30 feet wide, not quite as wide as our gymnasium, but pretty big. And according to Jewish writings, was as thick as a man's hand. I don't know if my hand is an average thickness, but, you know, a number of inches thick. It isn't a thing that you're going to snip apart, you know, with your kitchen scissors. But it's not just its size and strength, it's what it meant. There's actually a children's book out, it's, it's really great, it's called The Garden, the Curtain, and the Cross. And Carl Lafferton, I think is how you say his last name, uh, he describes the meaning of the curtain in this way. Because of your sin, you can't come in. Because of your sin, you can't come in. That's what the curtain meant. Because you are sinful, because we all are sinful, we must stay out of the presence of God because he is holy and he is awesome and his presence would consume us. We must stay out sort of in our sin and our sin that eventually leads to our death. But when Jesus dies, what happens? Well, the priests don't pull the temple down, like, we don't need this anymore. The, the disciples don't come in and light it on fire. The curtain is torn. 
from top to bottom. And if you imagine a large curtain hanging in our gymnasium today, a giant massive curtain, how could you or how could I, how could we tear it in two from top to bottom? Well, it's impossible. The only person who could tear it from top to bottom would be someone far larger, many times larger than you or I. See, on Good Friday, what's happening is God is tearing the curtain. He's, he's bisecting it. He is open for public viewing, for public consumption, the Holy of Holies. What does the ripping of the curtain tell us about the meaning of the death of Jesus? It means that Jesus has made a way for people to be with God again, just like Adam and Eve in the garden. But what about our sin? What about all this? Because of our sin, we can't come in business. If we can come in, it means our sin has been dealt with. See, the aftershock of Jesus' death tells you what Matthew doesn't, that human sin was paid for in the death of Christ. The author of Hebrews later wrote about this event. Listen to some of the language he uses. He says, Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Christ, by the blood of Jesus, pardon me, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. The author of Hebrews tells us we enter the holy places, we enter the presence of God through the curtain, through the bisected curtain because of Jesus. Good Friday means once and for all your sin as well as mine can be dealt with. Now, maybe that doesn't bother you too much. Maybe you shrug when you hear that sins can be forgiven. It's like, oh, well, I guess my you know, minor selfishnesses can be, can be forgiven. That's great. I suppose it means that God forgives me for hating my sister. You know, fine. I don't think we should brush past this too quickly. It means that all sin has the possibility of being dealt with. Uh, we theologians, we like to say Christ's death is sufficient for all sin, any kind of sin. This means that Ahmed Alyssa, who allegedly murdered 10 people in a grocery store in Colorado, that he can be forgiven. It means that Robert Long, who allegedly murdered six Asian women in Atlanta very recently, that he can be forgiven. It means that people you hate, people who disgust you, people you'd never be around in a million years, that Jesus is going after those people as well as you. See, the curtain is not, it's not just torn for you and for me and for people like us. It's a universal offer to humanity. And when forgiveness begins to bother you, you've perhaps begun to understand it. Because the depth of forgiveness purchased on the cross is really more than most of us want. We're like, can we just do half of that? Can we bell curve this somehow? It's an uncomfortable amount of forgiveness. And when we really understand it, it kind of makes us squir uh, squirm. Excuse me. But Jesus offers it freely. And he offers it to you. Perhaps the pandemic has surfaced things in you that you didn't know were there. Maybe you've realized there are depths to your sin. Maybe you've even wondered, am I, am I a Christian still? Maybe you've done things, maybe you've said things that have caused great ruin. The death of Jesus means forgiveness to the bottom. Wherever your bottom is. <laughs> as, as, as bottom as it gets, the bisected curtain reminds you that your sin has been dealt with by Jesus. Second aftershock, the earthquake, you know, a literal aftershock of some kind. But Matthew writes at the end of verse 51, 
that upon the death of Jesus, the earth shook and the rocks split. Now in Palestine, uh, earthquakes are relatively common. Big ones happen every 50 years or so on average. Small quakes, you know, regularly, much more often. It would not have been terribly unusual for an earthquake to take place. Now, the evidence is a little bit mixed. I think it's sometimes overstated by Christians. But histori most historians agree there was a moderate-sized earthquake sometime in AD 31, 32, or 33. Uh, basically, around the time that we think Jesus was likely crucified. We have decent non-biblical evidence uh, to believe that what Matthew says is true. Now, we also still believe what he says is true, even without that evidence. But the timing of the earthquake is still important because it immediately follows upon Jesus' death. Now, what could, what could it mean? Well, there's actually no explicit biblical explanation. So all the writers who come later, Peter, Paul, James, whatever, they, they never talk about the earthquake. But I have a couple ideas, a couple things I think it could mean. A couple chapters earlier in Matthew, Matthew 24, verse 7, in sort of a long speech that Jesus gives, uh, just like days before the crucifixion, during Holy Week, Jesus himself taught, he says, one of the ways you will know that the end is coming, that the latter days are coming, or that the end is beginning or getting near, is that there will be earthquakes. Er earthquakes are going to be a physical sign that things are changing, that, that spiritual changes are happening. Perhaps this earthquake is a fulfillment of prophecy. It's intended to show the disciples and then all of us later readers uh, that Jesus is sort of kicking off these latter days. You know, spiritual changes are occurring. It could be a signpost that this is the beginning of the end. And this, of course, holds with a lot of what Scripture teaches about Jesus inaugurating a new world, that we are in sort of the, the, the final days, even though they go on for a while. So an earthquake kind of fits in that sense. But an earthquake, second, could also fit, because in the Old Testament, earthquakes, uh, shaking ground, they often accompanied the presence of God. For instance, in Exodus 19, when God descends upon Mount Sinai and to give Moses the law that he, you know, he takes down to the people, the scriptures say the whole mountain shook violently. Sounds like an earthquake. The mountain shaking is a symbol of the divine presence. And if you look a little bit further along uh, in the reading we did, the earthquake is one of the things that convinces the centurion. When he kind of saw that, he's like, well, this is different. This is, this is not what I expected. Perhaps this earthquake is a demonstration of Jesus' identity as God. My third explanation for the earthquake, maybe it's more metaphorical. Maybe it simply reflects the earth-shaking reality that God was dying for the sin of the world. That, that the course of humanity is changing. It's sort of a history-defining moment. You know, the, the water is diverted on a different course. So the earthquake might have been these three things, a fulfillment of prophecy, a symbol of divine presence, a physical reflection of a spiritual reality, and maybe it was something else entirely. There's probably other explanations out there. But for us, I think it's important to remember the death of Jesus is not just a spiritual event. It is a spiritual event. But it also has effects on the physical. And sometimes we can become people very easily whose faith kind of lives merely in the mind. Or it's kind of pushed into some corner of our life where it has little effect. Uh, that's not how it ought to be. As the death of Jesus affects the physical world, I think our faith ought to work the same way. Going from our minds, from our spirits, into our day-to-day -day life. Third aftershock, the breaking open of tombs and the raising of the dead. That's in verse 52, and again, I know the numbers aren't in the bulletin, but it says the tombs were opened. An earthquake makes good sense of how this could be happened. In Palestine, people weren't buried like we bury people, but they were buried in rock. And an earthquake can easily, you know, rock doesn't flex and bend, and an earthquake could have easily broken up some of the rocks that sealed the graves closed. 
So this opening of tombs, not necessarily miraculous, could be explainable. But Matthew adds the graves were not just burst open, but some of the dead were raised to life. They went into the city and appeared to many. Now, to be fair, unlike the earthquake, and unlike the, actually the resurrection of Jesus, we don't have eyewitness accounts of, of, these, of these visits or of, the, of, of this event. All we have is what Matthew says here. Well, of course, we, we do believe that God's word is true. We don't need external support. It's handy when we have it, but this can stand on its own. So what does the resurrection of the dead mean? What does people being raised to life as Jesus dies, what does that tell us about the death of Jesus? I think it tells us two things. First, it tells us the death of Jesus accomplished something, or began to accomplish something. It tells us that what was unleashed in the death of Christ was a victory over death. It'll be, sort of be consummated on Easter morning, but somehow the descent of Christ into death led to a victory over death. This is a song I've been listening to a lot recently uh, by this songwriter, singer guy. I don't know, I don't know what he would call himself. He's called, his name though is John Mark McMillan. And the song he wrote is called Death in His Grave. And I want to read to you the chorus. Uh, it goes like this. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, laid down in grief but woke with the keys. To hell on that day, the firstborn on the, of the slain, the man Jesus Christ laid death in his grave. Now the reference to keys there, when he says, when, he, when Jesus awoke with the keys, it means that Jesus, by dying and by rising, took the keys to death. It's like, if someone has the keys to your house, like, I now own this place. This is, this is mine. It belongs to him. And then the last line of that chorus, as Jesus laid down in his grave, he took death with him and left it there. This is important to consider that the death of Jesus and the resurrection is not simply a victory over sin, but it contains the promise of a future resurrection. Jesus' death does not simply mean returning us to zero, making us a little bit better in this life. It's the promise of more to come. The fact that dead saints are raised as Jesus dies shows us like something cosmic is changing. The order of death uh, is being undone. The, the great foe of humanity... It's been, like, wounded. But also, I think the raising of saints foreshadows the rising of Christ. As the dead burst from their tombs, I think there's a plant to the seed of hope, at least in the disciples, that the death of Christ was not going to be the end, but that he would return. That there would be a rising for Jesus as well. Of course, Jesus had told the disciples this. He promised them this. He told them, three days, I'm going to rise. But, of course, everyone's still shocked when it happens. The death of Jesus was not the end. It, 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 it foreshadows the coming resurrection of not just Jesus, but all of us. Now finally, the fourth aftershock of Jesus' death was the convincing of skeptics. If you look down near the bottom, the centurion and those who were with them, keeping watch over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. The centurion and his crew, as far as we know, they were professional executioners. They were skilled and experienced in crucifying people. There's actually a, I found a paper by a Jewish anthropologist named Joseph Zias. I think is how you say his name. And he wrote it back in the 1980s. But basically, they did a bunch of excavation work, and they figured out that the Romans were crucifying people by the hundreds and thousands every year in the time surrounding Christ, in, in like the province of Palestine. A crucifixion would have been almost a daily task, easily a few times a week. So it's not something they messed up. And really, based on, on the research from this guy, Zeus, uh, 
these Roman soldiers probably saw hundreds, if not thousands, of people die. Now, if you've ever been with someone when they've died, it's a profound moment. It's full of meaning. It affects you deeply. You go away, you think about it for a while. It comes up, you know, when you, when you wake in the middle of the night. That's for most of us. But if you watch people die a few times a week or daily, I think most of the deaths, most of the deaths lose their significance. They kind of blend together. One doesn't stand out from the next. Yet when an experienced Roman centurion and his crew, those who were with him, Matthew says, when they saw what happened that day, when they felt the earthquake, when they heard the words from the cross, their conclusion was, this is the Son of God. In fact, Matthew says that they said, truly, this is the Son of God. Truly means, yeah, we don't have a tentative suggestion, not an opinion. It, it, it's a definitive statement of fact. And remember, these are not people who are you know, brought up in Christianity, didn't, didn't really exist. And they, they weren't raised to believe. They weren't bribed to, to tell a story. They were just putting in a day's work when Jesus exploded into their lives. And I would remind you today that Jesus dies exactly for people like them. Perhaps this morning you find yourself skeptical of Jesus. Maybe you grew up in church and you're moving away or have moved away from belief. Maybe you didn't grow up in church, but you're investigating Jesus. I, I don't know. What I do know is that Jesus' death is for you. He died for people exactly like you. He's interested in people who are being interrupted by him just in the course of their daily life, their daily work. In fact, the scriptures are here so that skeptical people, cynical people, can read the events surrounding the death of Jesus for themselves. Matthew doesn't want you to believe on blind faith. He's saying, look at what happened. See why the centurion's mind got changed and make up your mind for yourself. Because Jesus makes these audacious claims. He claims to be nothing less than God, his death nothing less than a sacrifice for sin. As we said this morning, his death makes a claim for, for forgiveness of sins and eternal life, future resurrection for his people. And it's a big claim. One the church has held for thousands of years, but for, it's for all of us to consider. Now, there's one more thing for us to think about before we finish up. It's not really an aftershock of Jesus' death. It's just one other thing happening. If you look at the very last part of that fun of the fifth reading, there's one more group standing by the cross. Matthew tells of faithful followers, a group of women who had ministered to Jesus since the early days in Galilee. And he names a few of them. Mary Magdalene is there, once possessed by demons, but now freed. She was there. Mary, the mother of Jesus, she was there. The mother of James and John was there, and some unnamed others. Now, most of the disciples weren't there. Other gospel accounts tell us that John was there. He's the only one we know for sure. It seems that most of the disciples weren't there because they were scared, and they were worried, they were unsure. Maybe they didn't want to get put on a cross beside Jesus. But moreover, what was happening on the cross that day, it didn't feel like a victory to them. It felt like a loss. It didn't seem like death and sin are, are being overcome. It felt like death and sin are winning. So what does the death of Jesus mean for this group of people? Believers, some faithful, some not really, some fearful, some confused. I think the answer to that question is kind of important because that feels a lot like the modern church. Kind of a mixed bag. Well, on one hand, I think it means some of the things we've been discussing this morning, these four aftershocks. It means, it means freedom from sin. It means earth-shaking chains. It means future resurrection. It means the convincing of, of cynical people. But on the other hand, it's easy to forget that Jesus died for this, 
these faithful people, these, these religious people, just as much as he died for Romans, Pharisees, and all the rest. The women, the absent disciples, they didn't need the death of Jesus any less. They needed it the same. And so do we. It's important to remember on Good Friday that Christ died for you. He didn't just die for other more difficult people who do really, really bad things. But your sin was enough to put Christ on the cross, and so was mine. The cross demands that each of us take our own sin seriously. That the body was broken and the blood was poured for Mary, his mother, for John, for Mary Magdalene and the rest. For them, Christ died, and for you, Christ has died. James K. Smith, an author I like, he wrote a book called On the Road to St. Augustine. And it's an exploration of Augustine, who's like this fourth century sort of church hero, father, writer guy. And it's an exploration of his theology, but also Augustine's personal spiritual journey, which has a number of twists and turns in it. And Smith writes about Augustine's view of freedom. And if you know Augustine, Augustine didn't think too highly of freedom. Now, we don't mean political freedom or economic freedom. He's talking about spiritual freedom. And Augustine taught that because of our sin, we're always going to be struggle when we kind of have freedom. Because our willpower is never going to kind of catch up to us. Our desire to do good, it's never going to really win over our sin. And Augustine even goes so far to say that freedom without the power of God can actually feel like constraint. Because we feel trapped by our own desires. We're not strong enough to bear freedom. What Jesus offers on Good Friday, it's not freedom to do whatever you want. Because that freedom doesn't actually lead us where we want to be. Jesus in his death offers us freedom from sin. And here's how Smith describes it. He writes in the first person, so I'll use his, his pronouns. He says, I'm still waiting for a final freedom when the vestiges of my old will are eviscerated, when there are no more mornings when I wake up hating myself, ashamed, even if I know, in quotes, that I'm forgiven. Grace has already broken in like a dawn, but I'm waiting for the splendor of its noontide light that never ends and for the shadows of my old self to dissolve. What Jesus kicks off on Good Friday is the dawn of a new day. The light of grace has begun to shine on our lives. It isn't a final freedom. We're not exactly who we want to be, but it's a start. And I would invite you to that today. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the death of Christ. Teach us all the more what it means. Teach us all the more to appreciate it, to know it, to sort of take it into our hearts and have it affect all of our lives. Lord, take these scripture words, take the words of our hymns, and drive them deep into our hearts. Change us and make us more like our Savior. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.